So would you please join in welcoming Erwin McManus. Thank you, thank you. It's great to be here with you guys. Have you noticed the more important a person is, the shorter the introduction is? It's true, right? Billy Graham. Right? Michael Jordan. Elvis. Erwin McManus. This is an explanation of why he should be talking. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> I was on the plane... And I had this horrible, I just thought, it just overwhelmed me. It was, I was going to speak in the place where Greg Boyd speaks every single week. And so, all oh, you're living under this illusion that Greg's just what you get every week, everywhere. And it's not. You have an unusual place. And I don't know if you realize how amazingly blessed you are by God to have someone like him teaching you every single week. And Austin... And so my role is to make you more appreciative of Greg <laughs> when he's back up here. My brother Alex is speaking at Mosaic. I don't usually miss Sundays, uh, but I, I did want to, to be here. I, I just thought it would be such a cool thing to get to hang out with you guys and, and just experience this place. The worship was wonderful. In Matthew 28, beginning of verse 16, it says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, we, we welcome your presence. Thank you for inviting us to meet you here. Thank you for lavishing us with your love, your mercy and kindness. And Lord God, you, you see through us. You see places that we have hidden from ourselves. And I ask you, Lord God, to do what only you can do, to reveal yourself, to make yourself known. To speak to the deepest place. You know the condition in which we come this morning, whether far or near. And we know that you are able to speak and to meet every need to fulfill every longing. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to help me not get in the way. God, help us to see what it is that you dream about our lives. 
So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Before we moved to Los Angeles 10 years ago, we were in Dallas for a while. And we were in this section near the Cotton Bowl. For a while, it was the, the highest crime rate, highest murder rate area in the United States. And we spent about 10 years down there. And we never had a problem with Christians from other churches coming to check us out, you know, looking for a new church home or something. You know, usually, if you are accidentally driving through the area, you drive through pretty quick and try to get out, get back on a, on a highway. And, and so we really never faced some of the dynamics that I think is happening are happening all over the country when we moved to la and, and we were in east la same situation nobody was looking for a church in east la and we were looking for them but they weren't looking for us and and then we started seeing god work and we started relocating and we, we moved places quite a bit sometimes with just a few weeks notice and and we started picking up christians along the way i don't know if that's i know that's happened here there's no way that it hasn't happened here and and we would get this question uh, where, where do i go to get discipled I don't know if that, that question's ever been asked here. But also that was an odd question. Where do I go to get discipled? And as I would inquire and just ask a few more questions, what I, what I discovered was what people meant is, where do I go to learn the Bible? They wanted to know where the classes were being held, where they could go and learn more about God, more about the Scriptures, get, become more doctrinally sound. And that was what people meant when they said, where do I go to get discipled? Or where do I go to have someone invest in me and, and help me become a better person? Where do I go to get discipled? And, and as I listened more and more, I, I came to the conclusion that what we understand to be a disciple and what Jesus mandated us to do are so different. It's almost astonishing. Uh, about a year ago, I was asked by a church, I think it was in Phoenix, to, to, to give them an hour to consult with them. And, and I didn't really want to, to be honest with you, but the guy was pretty persistent. And they said they'd buy me a free lunch. So I thought, oh, okay, that'll be all right. And and so I went and ate lunch with them, and there was a large group of people at the table, and there were a church of about five to 6,000 in attendance. And our congregation was only, was only really about 1,000. I thought, what am I going to do, tell you how to shrink, you know, lose 75% of your congregation? Or, I mean, what, what really can I do for these guys? And, and the guy who was in charge of the meeting said, uh, they were a Bible church, he said, we're, we're really great at discipleship, but we're, we're not very good at evangelism. And so we thought that maybe you could help us figure out how to, how to move our congregation to become more evangelistic. And I said, well, what's the Great Commission? And they knew the answer. They said, well, to make disciples. And I said, well, you said you're great at making disciples, so go at it. You're doing fine. I said, no, you don't understand. See, we're great at making disciples, but we're not very good at evangelism. And so what we thought is maybe you could help us figure out how to become a little more evangelist, how to become better at evangelism. I said, what's the Great Commission? What did Jesus tell us to do? And they said, make disciples. I said, you said you're great at making disciples. I said, yes. Well, then why would I tell you anything outside of what Jesus told you to do? So if you're great at making disciples, go ahead. Don't sweat it. I'm not going to tell you to do anything different. And looked at each other like, this guy just doesn't get it. And she said, no, you see, you see, we're really good at making disciples. But we're not very good at evangelism. And so we, could you help us figure out how to become more evangelistic? I said, what's the Great Commission? I said, make disciples. I said, you're great at making disciples. What are you worried about? You are doing what Jesus called you to do. You're making disciples. I'm not going to add anything to that. Just the meeting's over. That'll be $500. And they just looked at each other like, this guy, man. He's not with us. He doesn't understand. They said, we're not very good at doing evangelism. No one is coming to Christ here. We heard that 
Your, your place is seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We thought you could help us with that. And I said, what's the Great Commission? And you could just hear them exasperated, taking deep breaths, going, this is going to take a while. I said, either you are doing what Jesus called you to do, or maybe you have 5,000 attenders and no disciples at all. So maybe what you have to do is go back and apologize to your congregation and tell them that, I, that you've been telling them that they're disciples of Jesus Christ, and they're not. Because what Jesus said was to make disciples of all the nations. And so if you're doing that, then you have this dynamic, catalytic, entrepreneurial, risk-taking, life-changing, history-shaping, future-generating movement of Jesus Christ. If they're disciples of the living God. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And, and so now what Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to bring this intersection between time and eternity. I'm going to create this collision between the kingdom of God and the history of man. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And now you're going to make disciples of all the nations of the earth. God's kingdom intersects inside your soul. You aren't translated out of time into eternity. You and I, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, become the catalytic result of a God-created explosion. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is something we can fake. But it's not something you can be taught. We've bought into this framework that it's all about knowledge. It's all about education. And so we have churches packed with doctrinally sound or theologically knowledgeable, quote, Christians. And yet we lack men and women who fulfill the description that Jesus gives us. What does a disciple look like? What are, what are some, of the, some of the definable characteristics of a disciple that cannot be taught but are always true when you follow Jesus Christ? I want you to go back to some of the dialogues of the, the New Covenant. Go to Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. And I want you to see what God described is going to happen within us when we become disciples of the living God, disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of the Lord. Jeremiah, chapter 31. Beginning in verse 31, God is speaking. He says, the time is coming, declares the Lord. Isn't that exciting? The time is coming. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, he's talking about what he was going to usher into human history through the coming of Jesus Christ. He's saying when Jesus Christ comes to this world, when the Messiah comes, when the Son of God comes, when God himself takes on flesh and blood, walks among us, when he is crucified, buried and raised from the dead, when this new covenant is ushered in, something's going to happen. Is I will make this covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Here's what it looks like. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And he goes on to say, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
Now, that last part is wonderful. I will forgive their sins and remember their wickedness no more. And we've overemphasized that promise from God. I mean, I'm so glad my sins are forgiven, aren't you? I'm absolutely ecstatic that God will not remember my wickedness. Aren't you? But we have made that the epicenter of this new covenant. It's as if it's all about getting rid of sin, and it's not. One of the evidence of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is that you're God-taught. God is saying, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to usher in this new covenant. I'm going to pour my spirit on all of you. I'm going to put my law in your mind. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And this is how it's going to flesh out. No longer will a man will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. I think our churches are packed with people who know all about the Bible and know all about Jesus Christ. But we've created this religion called Christianity that is nothing about what Jesus Christ died for. And some of us are in a religion through hearsay, rumors, second-hand information. We read that God meets people. We hear from people who said they've met God, and so we just kind of follow along hoping that it's true. But we've never heard from God ourselves. Jesus was asking his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And Peter finally stood up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, flesh and blood have not revealed these things to you. But my father who's in heaven, he said, you've had an encounter with the living God. This intersects between heaven and earth. Eternity and time have just crashed together. You have met the creator God. This is the, the result of this new covenant of becoming a disciple of God, that God speaks to you. And you know that He has spoken. I think a lot of us are, have become overindulgent in eating out. When we had this little boy stay at our house one night, spend the night with our kids, and in the morning, Kim decided to do something really sweet for them. She started cooking eggs and, and bacon and pancakes and all the stuff, Right? And that little boy got up and smelled that aroma, and he said, Wow, it smells like Denny's here. <laughs> it was not a familiar aroma to home. And I remember several years into our, our parenting with our kids, Kim told the kids to come to dinner. And then she couldn't find them because they were sitting in the car. <laughs> and then I, I hear... People who go to church saying, I need to be fed. I need to be fed. I'm here to get fed. I need to find a church where I can get fed. Have you met people who are, quote, Christians who go to church to get fed? I mean, I, I, honestly, when people say, well, I, I'm here to get fed, I go, you're fat. I don't want to feed you. You need to go exercise. And I mean, our goal here should not be to feed people, but to make them hungry. If all you do is eat out, you're starving yourself to death the rest of the time. And this is the marvel. If you settle for just learning more about God from someone else, you're going to miss out on what it means to be a disciple. Because God wants you to know Him. He wants you to be God-taught. It doesn't mean that someone can't open up the Scriptures to you and teach you what God is saying and help you understand the Scriptures and bring you into God's presence and help you hear His voice. But as long as you're getting it from someone else, you are still not yet a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Because God wants you to have intimate communion and conversation with Him. See, across this planet, people are religious. They're trying to talk to God. 
But when you, when you pray, if all you're getting is, is the catharsis of, of feeling like you're talking to God, you're just religious. Jesus didn't come to make us religious. The evidence of, of, of connecting to God isn't that you're talking to God, it's that God is talking to you. And I know that sounds a little crazy, and I, I thought about that. It puts you on the bubble of insanity. But I, I think of the Apostle Paul. Paul says, you know, if it were for God, I'd be out of my mind. But because of you, I need to be in my right mind. But if it were for God, I'd be out of my mind. I understand that. I was in a psychiatric chair by the time I was 12. I wasn't neurotic. I was psychotic. I thought, oh, Jesus is going to make me healthy. Normal. No, he's not. He took me from insane to crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the movie Braveheart. Because I love the Irish guy. You know what I'm talking about? The guy you can hear from the Lord. The Lord is saying I need to protect you. <laughs> ah, Lord, yes, yes, yes. That's the gut spike. And I'm like, that's us. We're supposed to be a little off-center. We're supposed to be a little crazy. Anybody who wakes up and says, God said, is a little off the wall. Don't you think? When I, I was a, a new believer, I didn't know a whole lot. I, it was the week I turned 20 that I came to faith in Christ. And... And they gave me a King James Bible, and they were so well-intentioned that I'd never read Shakespeare. And, and it was very, very difficult for me to understand. And so I would take that King James Bible, and I'd say, I, God, I don't, I don't understand a word, but maybe you, like, explain things while, while I'm asleep. And so I would go to bed and hope in the morning I'd have clarity. And I, I wasn't all that clear, but I just said, everything I understand, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm going to obey, and just kind of kept moving forward on that. And, and I'm so glad I had some experiences with God before I went to seminary. Because so many things they told me that God didn't do anymore, He had already done, so it was a little late for me. And uh, <laughs> I remember somewhere when I was in North Carolina, I had gone from group to group. I mean, I was in every single Bible study, just about whatever group it was, I was there. And, and one of the worship leaders, she said, hey, you know, when uh, I used to borrow her guitar, so she, she said, I, I used to live with a guy named Kenny, and I used to do drugs, and... You know, I, I don't feel God anymore. I don't, I don't, it just doesn't feel like God's there. I'm, I called Kenny up. I'm leaving school. I'm going back. And I was kind of shocked that anybody would leave God because I just sort of got there. And, and I didn't know what to say. I, I, I couldn't find the book of Romans if my life depended on it. And I, I certainly couldn't do any biblical counseling. And, and I just looked and I said, Lynn, if there's anything Jesus could do to prove his love for you, I know he would do it. Well, I, now I know that he proved his love through the cross. I, it just didn't occur to me right then, all right? I was in a pinch, you know? It was, it was a crisis moment. And, and, and she said, all right, then I'd like for it to snow. I remember looking at her, and this, this is why I don't understand women. And, and, see, no guy would say that, right? So, I, I mean, was she preparing that? Uh, you know, I mean, was that already in her mind? I'm walking God on last. You know, I mean, I, I don't know where it came from. I just looked at her and I thought, woman, give me something I can do. And, but I just stood and all of a sudden I heard my, my mouth. I, saw, I, I mean, I felt my lips moving, but I was even more surprised when I heard words coming out. And I looked at her and I said, God is going to make it snow. I thought, what are you saying? And so I added within 24 hours, just, you know, I, I said, in case, you know, and... And, I, and I, I remember just sort of, that was the end of the conversation. I went back to my dorm room and, and I locked my door, turned off the light. I just got on my face before God, just fell on my knees and just started crying out to the Lord saying, God, I don't know what happened. I, 
I, I, I, I, God, I, I thought you spoke to me. I thought you told me to say that. But if it wasn't you, could it be you? Could you, you know, sort of, you know, shift over? You know, it's a pretty good idea, you know. And, uh, and I was just praying. I didn't know how to pray. To be honest, I wasn't praying that it would happen. Because I, 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 I thought that somehow God spoke to me from the inside out. And just sort of my lips moved and it kind of came. And, and I, was, I, I, pr- I was there for hours just praying. You know what I'm talking about? You know, couple hours later, man, when I woke up, you know, I was, I believe in unconscious intercession. You know, I had, I had, I had the prayer mark on my forehead, you know what I'm talking about? And I woke up when my roommate, Mark, opened the door and turned on the light. He goes, Erwin, I jumped up. And speaking of Mark, I wish I had read the Gospel of Mark before the Gospel of John. Because I had only made it to the Gospel of John. Because in Mark, Jesus does these really cool things and he says, go and tell no one. And, but I hadn't read that. Otherwise, I would have thought of, to do that. Because she went all over campus telling everyone she saw that God was going to make a snow for her. Because he loves her. Now, I didn't tell her to do that. And again, if I had better direction from the Gospels, I would have known how to adjust to that. But she went and just spread this rumor. That God was going to make it snow. So my roommate, Mark, comes to the room and he goes, have you looked outside? And I knew he was like making fun of me, or I thought he was. I said, no. And he goes, oh, look outside. And I remember getting up really slowly and walking over to the window, taking a deep breath and pulling up that ugly college shade. And and there was snow everywhere. It started snowing almost from the moment I fell asleep. And... (laughs) But I never bothered to look outside. And when I saw all that snow everywhere, I thought, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it was going to happen the whole time. And I just <laughs> ran out of my room and down the stairs and across that campus found that girl playing in the snow. And she did not go back to her boyfriend, Kenny. And I realized in that moment that even though I didn't understand it, I can't explain it. And I don't have a, a really good way of, of, of just really laying it out. That God spoke to me. I somehow heard him. I actually act on it before I was reasonable. And in that moment of insanity, I discovered that God was alive and well. And my little boy, who's now 14, when he was little, kept hearing about the voice of God and hearing God speak and and hearing the the teaching of of John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. Sheep are essentially cute and dumb. And, And that's us. And... But here's the unique thing about sheep. They can hear my voice. They know my voice. They call them out by name. And my voice they'll follow. Now, I may not be much of a theologian, but I get it. God speaks. And those who belong to Him hear and obey. And so my son said, Daddy, how do you hear God's voice? What does God's voice sound like? You're like seven or eight. And honestly, I didn't know how to tell him what God sounded like. I, well, how do I know if God's speaking? I, 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 well, I knew to tell him, well, if it matches up with the Scriptures... Because God never contradicts His character, His Word. But I really couldn't tell Him how to get God to talk to Him. And I was stuck because I couldn't teach Him this. Only God could do it. A few years later, I sent Him to a camp, the first Christian camp. And I was proud of Him. He's a good guy. I mean, he's not going to be like other preacher's kids. He's going to really honor me. You know... He's going to really just 
honor Christ and be a spectacular believer. And so I sent him off to this camp, and, and you, the parents aren't allowed to come see the kids. You know, it's like one of those like, Gestapo camps, you know, where you're, you're, you're a prisoner for the week. And, but since I'm the pastor, I could come up in the middle of the week and visit my kids, you know. Well, when I got there two days later, my son was in trouble. He'd been in trouble for two days from the day he got there. Because at lunch, this other kid, this big, huge bully of a kid, he said something about Aaron's mom. My wife, by the way. And he said something mean and nasty about Aaron's mom. And so my little boy got up and said, I'm going to beat the crap out of you. And, and then he lunged across to grabbed this guy, and his friends started holding him back. And I'm really glad they did, because my, my son's really small, and he was really huge. He would have killed my son. And they held him back, finally, and broke him up, and he would not ask for forgiveness. Because, you know, at the Christian camp, you can pretty much do anything as long as you ask for forgiveness. You know? And, but he would not ask for forgiveness. And two days had gone by, and he would not repent. And so I went and talked to Aaron, and, and I heard the story from him, and I got it from the counselors, and it was pretty close to the same thing. And I said, Aaron, you've got to go ask the kid for forgiveness. You've got to go ask for forgiveness. He goes, I'm not. I said, Aaron, you need to. And he goes, I'm not going to do it. You know why? He said, why? He goes, I'm not sorry. I said, okay, you've got to work up the sorrow. <laughs> and then you've got to go ask for forgiveness. He goes, I'm not going to do it. The only thing I'm sorry for is that I didn't get one good punch in before they grabbed me. And, I, and he said, Dad... He said something about my mom. And I'm going to tell you, Dad, if anyone ever says anything about my mom, I'm going to go after them. I'm going, yes, yes, no, son. You know? And, uh, but you just kind of hold back on the language and then strike. But, uh, but I knew I was a pastor. I had to try to walk him through this forgiveness thing, and it didn't work. And he said, you told me I wouldn't have to stay if I didn't want to. And I said, that's true. And I promised my kid he would never have to play Christianity if he didn't believe in Jesus or want to follow him. And so he said, I'm leaving. I said, all right. So I went to his cabin. His stuff was everywhere. And he goes, help me pack. I said, no, I didn't tell you I'd help you do the wrong thing. And so it took him about a half an hour to pack. And he goes, I know what you're doing. You're trying to do this child psychology thing where I stay. I go, I said, of course I'm doing that. Will you stay? He goes, no. And I said, all right. And, and then he had all his bags. And he said, will you help me take him to the car? I said, No. So he dragged him all the way across the mountain, you know. He was like, I know what you're doing. I said, I know. Is it working? No. So he's dragging it, you know. He finally picking it up, putting it in the car. I won't help him at all, you know. It's your stuff, you know. And if you're leaving, I hope you take it with you. And he just pushed it. And finally, after he had everything in, it took about an hour. We kind of headed off in the little woods there. And we sat on a couple of rocks. And I, I said, Aaron, before we leave, I just want to ask you a question. And I said, what's that, Dad? And I said, is there any voice inside of you telling you what to do? He goes, yeah. I said, well, what's the voice saying? He goes, the voice is telling me I should stay here and work it out. I said, well, can you identify that voice? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it's God. But I'm still not doing what he says. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, Aaron, forget everything else. Forget everything else. Do you realize that, that the living God, the creator of the universe, just spoke to you? And you heard his voice and you know his voice. He goes, yeah, but I'm still not doing it. And I said, oh, that, that's going to be up to you, bud. But let me tell you how it works. When you hear God's voice, if you obey it, if you obey him, his voice 
becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. But if you disobey his voice, if you discount his voice, then your heart becomes hardened and your ears become dull of hearing and his voice becomes so distant that one day God will seem as he is silent to you. But the choice is yours. And I thank God that my son chose to stay. But more than that was that I knew he was a disciple of Jesus Christ because he was God taught. I wonder, are you God taught or just listening in? Are you just a spiritual eavesdropper? You see, if you're following someone who's following Jesus, you can look like a follower of Christ. I was failing yesterday. I was on, I was in a race. We came in third. Most of the, most of the boats decided not to sail, but that, that doesn't matter. And, and we came in, and if you looked, I was moving. I mean, I was left, right, moving, everything, you know, tacking, everything. You know why? Because I had to keep getting out of the way while everyone else was doing their job. And so if you looked, you'd think I was a sailor, but I wasn't. I was just hanging around, trying to stay dry. And some of you are moving in the right direction because you're following people who are following Christ, but you're still living by a second-hand religion because you're not God-taught. The rest of the week, God is silent. God wants us to know Him, to know His voice. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. A disciple of Jesus Christ is God-taught, but He's also God-moved. You can fake it, but you can't teach this. It's something God does when He begins to move you. Ezekiel 36, I'm going to begin in verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am doing, going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord. When will the nations know that God is the Lord? Here it is. When I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Here's... God's strategy. Here's His plan. He's going to redeem His reputation. He's going to restore the wonder of His name. Not by being holy Himself, because He, he already is holy. But by taking an unholy, corrupt, vile, evil, sinful, self-indulgent, prideful, arrogant, greedy, lustful, jealous, embittered people like you and me, and revealing His holiness through us, that's how the nations are going to be astonished. Now, how is he going to do this? Verse 24 on down. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will make you clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. But it doesn't stop there. He explains how this is going to happen. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you and move you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Here's the marvel of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are not only taught by God, but you are now moved by God. When Jesus Christ comes into our life and he envelops us, he doesn't just make us fearful of sin. He doesn't just make the boundaries clear so that we can obey the law. 
God changes our cravings, our desires, our longings, our passions, so that we want to obey God and be righteous and do the good. Not because we have to, not because we're afraid of hell, not because we're afraid of punishment, not because we're worried about anyone else is going to say, but because we love the good. I mean, if you're here and you're just trying to live an upright life because, well, it's better than living, you know, a downright miserable life, you don't get it yet. If you're just trying to hide the corruption of your heart by trying to live a good life, you, you still aren't there yet. If in the quiet, dark moments where no one else is around you, you do not long to look like Jesus Christ, you have not yet discovered the power He longs to place within you. Because what God does in us is He changes our passions, our longings, our desires. And He moves us toward righteousness. In Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. God wants to trust your desires. He wants you to be able to trust your desires because when He changes our hearts, our desires are changed, aren't they? I've never understood the attraction of Buddhism. The, the ultimate end of Buddhism is the elimination of all desire. That's the opposite of Christianity. God is trying to ignite your desires, to unleash your desires, to make you a person who's consumed by a passion for God and for God. That I will restore my holy name by the life you live, not because you have to, but because you long to. You long to do the good, the right, the true, the beautiful, the holy. Just a couple of months ago, this young woman named Katie came up to me on a Wednesday night, and she was so animated, you know, she was so excited. She said, I, I just wanted to say hi, hi, I'm, I'm Katie, and it's good to meet you, Katie. And she said, I just wonder, I just wonder, do I need to be baptized? And I said, Well. It's a possibility. I don't really know you. And uh, can you tell me about yourself? She goes, yeah. She goes, well, I've been coming for a few weeks, and I just wondering, do I need to be baptized? And I said, well, it's always really helpful if you come to a personal faith in Jesus Christ first. And she goes, I think I've done that. I said, really? And she goes, yeah, you know, a few weeks ago you were, you were talking in, in the service, and then you led people in a prayer. I prayed that prayer, and I think something happened to me. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, I just, I think something happened because I can't stop reading the Bible. I mean, I just keep reading the Bible every day, every night, every break I have whenever I don't have to do any work or any, any time I can. I just read the Bible. I just want to read more and more and more of the Bible. I think something happened to me that day. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I think something happened to you too. I think it needs to happen to me. I, you know, and, and I remembered in that moment what happens when Jesus Christ changes your life. Sometimes we forget. It's not about legalism. It's not about trying to keep the Ten Commandments. It is about breaking through the law and living in such grace that the law is almost invisible because you're living so far above it. We have so reversed everything. We pretend that the law is this extraordinary level of living. And when I was not a believer in Jesus Christ, I used to think the Ten Commandments were like this pinnacle of living, right? These amazing commandments that no one can live up to. And here's the catch-22. Here's the divine maliciousness. God establishes these Ten Commandments. They're impossible to keep. Then tells us to keep them. We fall short of keeping them. And then He sends us to hell. Right? And that's sort of the way it's sort of laid out. And except the Ten Commandments are not these ideals. The Ten Commandments are not the optimal level of living. The Ten Commandments are the lowest level of humanity. To live beneath the Ten Commandments is to live like an animal. I mean, let's check them out just for a minute. 
All right, here's one of them. Uh, hey, could you guys not kill each other? And that's an extraordinary commandment, isn't it? Whoa, you're really something. You haven't killed anyone all day, right? Here's another one. Um, hey, how about not stealing other people's stuff? You know, kind of work for your stuff. Or, you know, how about not lying to each other? Well, who do you think I am, God? Oh, I like this one. This is one of my personal favorites. When he comes home, can his wife still be his? Are, are, are these that extraordinary? Anything below them is living like a dog, like an animal, like a barbarian. The, the indictment is not that God gave us these divine level commandments and we fell under them. The indictment is that God gave us the lowest level of humanity and we still tripped on it. He set the bar on the ground and we slithered under it. Even the first couple of commandments. Hey, what's easier? Worshipping a thousand gods who do not exist or worshipping one God who does? I mean, God wasn't making it harder. He was making it easier. He was simplifying. Look, if you make up a God, he can't answer your prayers. Just, just worship me. It's all simplification. It's the simplest level of living. And we do that with Christianity. It's, it's so legalistic. And if you keep the right rules, then you're walking with Jesus. If you have the right doctrine, then you're walking with Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, until your God moved, you're not the disciple that Jesus imagines or died for. When you're moved by the heart of God. When Mike and B came to Mosaic, they were 19. They were living together, met in a club about 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, he had dropped out of UCLA because, well, actually he didn't drop out. He flunked out. And he kept sending fake report cards to his parents so they could keep sending money. And, and this is the wonderful state they were in when we met them. And I remember when B came to faith in Jesus Christ, Mike popped over to the church to see what man she was leaving him for. And he figured he couldn't compete with Jesus, so he was in real trouble. And he started coming, listening, and, and I remember that he came to faith. He said, I'm going to be like Abraham. And he said, cool, you know, and that was his conversion. And, and he, he has. He's been trying to move like Abraham ever since. And, of course, they were living together, and, and yes, they were having sex. Outside of marriage, and, and I had people pointing that out to me. Well, yes, yes, they're Christians now, but, but you know, you got to talk to them. And, but before I could talk to them, they, said, they came to me and said, you know, we're not having sex anymore. But, you know, we're, we're, still, we're still living in the same apartment because, you know, we have shared rents and everything like that. But, but we're, we're not, not, you're not, you know, having sex anymore. And I said, oh, well, that's, that's great. That's, that's good. And, and then we're going to baptize them. And someone says, well, you, you can't baptize them because they're living together. And I said, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, and... He goes, oh, yeah, sure, right, you know. And so they came to me and said, you know, we're going to get baptized. And, and we found something out. Our, our friends who don't know God, we keep telling them that we're not having sex, even though we're living together. And they go, yeah, sure. And I'm going, why? I, 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 there are other people saying, yeah, sure, too. And, and they said, so we decide we can't live together because we have to let people see what Jesus is doing. And then he called his parents and told them that he had flunked out of UCLA and that he'd been lying to them and getting all this money, and they were not very happy. But his mother was an atheist, and she was more unhappy that he'd become a Christian. And they were Mexican, and they're very racist, and they're even more unhappy that she was, he was dating a white girl. And so they basically said, look, you come home, we'll pay for your college all over again, but you leave that church and you leave that girl. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I have just come to faith in Jesus Christ. I need this community. 
And so he had to pay his way through college. Start all over again. He graduated number one, Manna Cum Laude, from Cal State LA. And received a full scholarship to medical school in Manhattan. And in, during that time, B became a fashion designer, has an office over Times Square, and they're barely 27, 28 years old. But what happened before or in between was what important, was important to me. Here are two people who came to faith in Jesus Christ in the worst of conditions, and they made a personal decision that until they were married, they would not be physical, they would not kiss, they would not even hold hands. As a witness to his parents who were unbelievers and to those who had known them, and, his, and he said, I, would not, I will not marry until my mom and dad give me a blessing to get married, even though they don't believe in God. And he had to wait over four years. And for four years, Mike and Beatrix were in our body. And for four years, though they were close and they ministered together, they never even held hands. And when they came into that sanctuary to be married, the whole place stood up and gave him and her a standing ovation. See, when you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Spirit moves you from the inside out. And it's not about, hey, can I still do this and be okay with God? You blow the top out of the commandments. You begin living at a whole different level because grace is always greater than the law. You know, we we talk a lot about, we do talk a lot about tithing at Mosaic. That's giving 10%, by the way. And when we have our new members staying at our house, I had some guy ask me, hey, is this a grace church or a law church? And I said, oh, it's a grace church. I knew I was being trapped, but, you know, you've got to just jump into the trap, you know. And I said, oh, we're a grace church. He goes, good. I was, I was worried you're one of those law churches that said you have to tithe, you know, give 10%. I said, oh, no, no, we're a grace church. I said, the law says do not murder. Grace says that you won't, do not even have hatred in your heart toward your enemy, but love your enemy. The law says do not commit adultery. But grace says that you don't even have to have lust in your heart for another man's wife. The law says give 10%. But grace we would, says give 20, 30, 40, 50%. We would never stop you from being generous. I remember his theological rebuttal. Oh. Isn't it amazing how Christians actually think that grace is less than the law when it really sets you free to live, to be sacrificial, to be generous, to be dangerous, to take risks, to give of yourself for the sake of others, to be moved by God. Just one last passage and we'll close. In Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, it says, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on on earth, blood and fire and billow of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And we, we use that verse, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And we focus again on getting rid of sin. Or getting rid of judgment. See, look, here's the promise. God's not going to punish you. He's not going to send you to hell. You get to go to heaven. And we miss what is really jazzing God. I mean, God isn't all wired that you stop sinning. He created you sinless. He's not all excited about making you good. He created man good. We blew it. We stepped down. We went under the bar. God had plans for Adam and Eve after he created them. 
It wasn't they're just going to sit there and go, oh, you're looking pretty. I mean, God took Adam and had him named all the animals, didn't he? And God didn't just take off. God was there. And says, everything Adam named him, God said, that's, what, that's good. I think God might have had better names, but he didn't care. Because he created man to be a creative partner with him. And I just I can't even imagine the capacity that man had. I mean, he had no laptop. He had no hard drive. He had no memory system except the one in his head. He could name every animal. I mean, if it were me, I'd be going giraffe. He goes, you already used that one. Right? <laughs> but not for Adam. Because man... In relationship to God is different than man outside of relationship to God. And all the amazing genius and creativity in humanity still is a diminished product of what God intended. He says, I will pour out my spirit. And what's going to happen is that old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. The movement that Jesus Christ died to usher in is the movement of dreamers and visionaries. It's, it's not a movement of educators and students or managers and administrators. It is a movement of dreams and visions erupting out of every life, discovering the full capacity of a life lived in God. And our godless dreams are too small for a God-filled life. Old men will dream dreams. If you're here and maybe you've given up, maybe you, you've waited for God to change your life or to help you get rid of the sin, or, or maybe you just, you've pushed God off so long you feel like you've missed your best opportunity. Let me tell you, you're, you're not too old to have a dream given to you by God. If you're alive, you should still be dreaming. And young men will have visions. Remember, Israel was a slave. Slave to Egypt, slave to Babylon, Persia, Chaldeans, to Rome. And they were always slaves. And slaves have a different mentality than free people. When I spent my years and years among the urban poor, it wasn't the lack of, of, of money or, or clothing or housing or food that struck me. It was the lack of dreaming. It seemed as if the capacity to dream a better life was lost. And God was speaking into his people saying, though you have been slaves, though you've been in bondage, I will give dreams to those who have done nothing but bondage all their lives. And I will give vision to those who have a life in front of them and no one else is speaking hope into their soul. God wants to unleash you to become everything he created you to be. There is no conflict between your capacity and God's glory. It's so funny when I hear people say, oh, you know, Paul says, in my weakness, God has proved perfect or made strong. So I have to be weak so God can be strong. That is so arrogant. Your greatest strength is weak in comparison to God. You could be maxing out all of your capacity and you are still desperately needy of God. I don't think the great tragedy is that we're going to stand before God and see all the sins we've committed because he remembers our wickedness no more. I think the great tragedy is when we stand before God and we get one small sense of what our lives could have been if we feared nothing but God and changed our goal from living a long life to living a life where every moment was worth dying for. If we just believe Jesus, that if we try to save our life, we'll lose it. But if we will lose our life for his sake, we'll find it. 
hey, you know this book that um, I wrote that, uh, called An Unstoppable Force? It's kind of a funny thing because um, I, I graduated from high school with a, a straight D average, I think it was. And, uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, and I hope I wasn't an overachiever, but, uh, you know, from first to twelfth grade, I, I never really showed any, any um, potential. You know, some people, you ever see someone who says, that person has so much potential? No one ever said that about me. You know, they look at me and they thought, you know, he's not doing anything. And I think he's maxing it out, you know. And uh, my last day of, of high school, I, I, I turned in some papers late to my English teacher. You know, how you had to write short stories in English. And I don't know, I turned in maybe 20 or 30 papers in that last day. And she was a little upset with me. And she said, Erwin, you know, have you thought about going to college? And I said, yeah, maybe. And she goes, you will never make it. And I said, thank you, you know. And uh, so I was launched out of high school, and I didn't go to college. I just floated, did nothing. And cooked hamburgers, cooked pizzas, just kind of burned the days away. And I decided I probably ought to go to college because you don't have to work. And, uh, and I begged my way into a school. I mean, I begged my way into a school. And I got in, and, and then in the process... You know, I, I met Jesus Christ. And I look and I laugh about this book because um, it, it's, just, it's just goofy. I, when, I, uh, when I tried to write this book, what happened is my wife and I, we, we were, I, I averaged about $6,000 a year income for about 10 years. And uh, I know wealth like that isn't available to everyone. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then God just sort of like, boom, it just opened up and shoot, our income just went shooting to the roof. I thought, wow, this is it. Ten years of sacrifice. Now we're really smoking, you know. And we bought a brand new house. And we could buy cars cash. And, and, and then it was almost as if God said, just kidding. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, I want you to give it all up. And it was a huge jump. Ah! And we were about 31, you know. And I, I'm so convinced that you should sacrifice and suffer in your 20s. And, and then we just had to give up everything. And, and I had like $30,000 in a retirement fund at 29 and, and just boom. But it was all gone because we had to use it all just to survive. And then we had thousands and thousands of dollars of debt. And we were living in L.A. going, how are we going to make it? And the cost of living was greater and our income was declining. And, and, and God just slowly, piece by piece, just started um, putting our lives together in a new way. And then in the middle of it, I ended up pastoring this church. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't go to be a pastor. I was just an attender. And somehow I ended up being the pastor. I, I didn't want to be the center of everyone's um, affection. And, uh, um, yeah, and, and so then God just spoke to me in the midst of a campaign we were doing called Believe in the Impossible. And I went home and I told my wife, I think God wants us to give $25,000 to the church as an act of generosity and sacrifice. And our income was just in the 30s, so that was a lot of money. And Ken looked at me and said, well, why not $30,000? I had 5,000 reasons why, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but we have a, a commitment. We, we moved to the highest level of faith and the highest level of sacrifice and generosity. So I said, all right, 30,000 it is. And we kind of tried to put together a plan, but we didn't have a plan. And she got a job, but she got a job teaching in a Christian school, so it cost us more money for her to teach and for her, you know, because the material cost us more money than the income. And so we were washed out there, and, and we didn't do very well. You know, we gave a couple of thousand the first year beyond our, our tithe, and... And it, it didn't look good. 
And then I spoke someplace, and, and this publishing company called me up and said, this 45-minute lecture you did, could you make it into a book? And I said, I, I, I don't know, I guess. And they go, well, we'd like a book. And I said, well, send me a contract, and let's, let's, let's talk about it. And I, I didn't really know what a contract was, you know. I mean, I, I, knew, what it liked, I knew what it was to have a contract on you, but I didn't know what, you know. And, and so I... And they sent me a contract, and it was for $25,000. Now, I'm an unknown, anonymous nobody. I mean, that was a lot. I mean, that was the most money they ever offered to anybody. $25,000. I knew it was $25,000. My wife was wrong. But I know. And, uh, and there it was. And, and, and I signed the contract, but except that with one clause. They were going to send me an advance on the book. And I said, don't send me the advance. They said, what? I said, I don't want any money from you. I'll take the $25,000 if I actually write it. And they go, we've never had an author re- refuse money. And I said, look, I don't want to have to give it back. <laughs> you know, and so just hold it. You know, and they said, all right. You know, and, and so I, I, I tried to write this book and I couldn't do it because I, I don't type. I, and I had 20 pages and I was about three weeks from the deadline on January 6th. I would stay up all night, wouldn't even go to sleep. I'd just type away, but I can't type. Had the thoughts, but I couldn't get it out. And I remember telling my wife about December 13th or so, I, honey, I can measure success and failure, and I, I'm, I'm going to fail. I can't do this. And that weekend or so, this young woman named Holly Rapp, who goes to our congregation, had been coming for about three years, walked up to me at the nightclub and said, you know, you know I, I hear you're trying to write a book. And I said, yeah, kind of, yeah, you know. And she said, well, you know, I, 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 for a couple of years I've been asking you if I could help you, but you'd never respond. I send you some of your tapes transcribed, but I never get any feedback. I never looked at them. I don't want to hear my message as much as read them, you know. And, and, I, and I said, oh, well, what, what do you do? She goes, well, I work for Sidney Sheldon. Now, Sidney Sheldon wrote, created I Dream of Jeannie, Patty Duke Show, Heart to Heart, and like 20, 30, 40 novels. And she goes, for the last five years, I've been Sidney Sheldon's uh, sonographer. I type 240 words a minute. And I've learned that's a lot, you, you know. And, and that was about 238 minutes faster than me. So I... I I was really open, and, and, I, and I said, well, what do you, she goes, I just type while you talk. She goes, Sidney is one of those few authors that talks all of his books in. And she goes, you talk a lot, you know, and so maybe you could do that. And I knew I couldn't write it down, so I said, okay, let's give it a shot. And so we went to Palm Springs, where she was living at that time. She was commuting to L.A. to come to our church. And so I took a couple of guys with me, and after she got finished with Sydney, she came over and set up, and from 9 to 12, we worked, and I think we had 30 pages, actually. And, uh, and then the next three hours, we had um, another 30. And, and, and then 45 hours later, we had the whole book. And, and for some odd reason, I can go, like, from head to text, and it just comes out close to right. And, um, and I looked at Holly after the third day, and I said, uh, Holly, why don't you leave this decadent life of absolute affluence and privilege of living in Beverly Hills and Palm Springs and traveling around the world on Sydney's generosity and come and work for me. And, uh, and, and I said, I don't have any income, but I have a wonderful job opportunity. And she said, you know, I've saved enough money for one year. I've been looking for something new to do. I'll give you one year of my life for free. And so within two weeks, she was at Mosaic working with me and the book was there on time. And I can tell you this, God longs not only to speak and teach you and not only to move you, but he, he longs to unleash you. 
But until you're willing to step beyond your comfort, beyond your safety, to risk and live a dangerous life in God, you will never experience the full power of His Spirit. And you'll never discover the great dreams and visions that would just absolutely erupt in your imagination if you would just let God join you in your dreams. God created you to create beauty and goodness. God created you with His gift of creativity to carve and craft a future by the power of Spirit in you. And I just want to encourage you this morning, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can get the information, but you can't be taught to be it, to be one. It comes when you meet God, and He speaks, and He moves, and He unleashes you. And you realize that heaven and earth have intersected. Eternity and history have come together in your soul. And God has met you there. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are the great creator. Your creativity has not ceased. You dream about us. You see the God-given capacity, potential, and talent, and gifting, and intellect in every person here. And I just ask you, God, to stretch our imagination. You tell us through Jeremiah that if we would just call to you on you, that you would show us such amazing things that would blow our minds. You tell us that you would do far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And I pray right now, Lord Jesus, that you would free us from Christianity as a religion and make us true followers of Jesus Christ that live in intimate communion with you. Right now, Jesus, just wrap people up, envelop them in your love. Let them know that you are God. Speak, God, so clearly that, that their insides will be shaken up. Leave us, God, disturbed. Longing, craving you. And set us free to be what you created us to become. I thank you, Jesus, that your death is truly our life. And so we pray in your name, Jesus. In your name. Amen. You may be here this morning and you need to meet the God who created you. You need to be set free by the God who loves you. You need to trust God and open up your imagination and let God just sit down with you and and dream about your life with you. I want to invite you, if you need someone to pray with you, to counsel with you, if you need someone to guide you into a relationship to the living God, just come forward this morning. There will be some people here, brothers, sisters, waiting to counsel and pray with you. If you just need to cry out to God and say, God, I've been living for less. I, I have been a disciple of Christianity and not a disciple of Jesus in the way I've been living. And you need to come. If you need God to restore your craving for Him, your fire, your passion to love Him and to love the God, I just want to encourage you before you leave, just take some time at the altar and, and let God speak deeply into your soul. My, my, my kids have asked me, Dad, when you pray, why are you always silent for so long before you talk? And I said, because before I speak, I want to listen. The Lord bless you. Let's stand.
You're dismissed.